I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hey everybody, it's David Pluff. Welcome to Campaign HQ. Well, we're in mid-July. A lot happening in the presidential campaign. I'll focus on that. There's obviously more importantly a lot happening around us with the pandemic and the economy and protests. But a couple things worth pointing out. One, uh, some of you probably saw this, but Joe Biden's campaign has gone on the air with advertising in Texas, you know, is also intensifying their efforts, you know, in places like Georgia, Ohio and Iowa, as are some independent groups. And so, A, you like to see that, of course, because in a presidential campaign, um, if you are faced with the prospect of just having to win all the battleground states you're targeting, you're probably going to lose. You have to pull an inside straight, almost a black swan event. So, you know, Joe Biden's increasingly getting in the position where he's going to have, we thought maybe it would only be five or six, but he may have 10 or 12 states that conceivably could tip in his column. Very important point, you know, which I've mentioned before, but I really will underline here is, you know, if Joe Biden wins Texas, it's almost certainly going to be after he's already won, you know, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Florida. So it's not a tipping point state. It's something that would be, we'd love to see Texas turn blue for a lot of reasons, but, you know, that's his 350th electoral vote. So um, the good news is for all of you who live in states like Texas and, and Georgia and Ohio is you've got great, you know, important local races, but, you know, you have a presidential campaign now that thinks that uh, a win could be in reach. And so you can be centrally involved. You don't have to say, well, I'm only going to call into Pennsylvania. Um, you can work your own state if you're most passionate about the presidential campaign. Um, but, you know, the Biden campaign, I'm sure will do a good job. They have to of, of making sure that they're not spending resources or mind share that, uh, you know, in, in some of these outlying states um, without doing everything possible and then some to make sure you're winning the core battleground states. But that's um, really great to see. And, you know, that's a fundamental change from where we were uh, 60 or 90 days ago. And I think um, it is very important because, you know, when I used to oversee presidential campaigns, um, you know, you want seven, eight, nine different ways to win, you know, combinations of states. And right now, Biden's got a lot more of that than Trump, who who has to pull on the inside straight. Um, secondly, um, you know, I think the big story of the campaign, and I'm going to talk to our, our guest today about that, is just Trump's continued inability to land on a message, both on his behalf, kind of his argument to be rehired and against Biden. We had a great conversation with John Favreau about that last week. But that really, uh, I think, was was made even more clear in his um, performance in the Rose Garden uh, this week. Uh, an abomination. Um, we've never had Republican president, Democratic president, somebody used that hallowed ground to basically, um, you know, perform a campaign rally. We may say, what does that matter? It does matter. I mean, these norms, these institutions matter. There should be some separation between your job as president uh, and your job as candidate for reelection. But that was less important to me. Uh, I hope we don't see that again, uh, you know, for many, many years, if ever again. But, um, you know, Trump is just all over the place. I mean, he's clearly slipped a little bit in terms of his ability to be cogent, to be consistent. But, you know, he just hasn't landed on an argument for himself or against Biden. And that's important because the weeks are passing by here. Uh, I mean, this election, you know, will be here, you know, in 14, 15 weeks. Every week that passes without Trump really landing on, here's my sentence on my behalf and here's my sentence against my opponent um, in a way that, that is consistent and repeatable and persuasive um, to the voters that he needs to convert uh, and to, to energize, you know, that's a week that's lost. Uh, and I think Biden has had a couple really good weeks here where he's beginning to fill in for people what he would do as president. You know, that's not just his resume and he's kind of the safe alternative to Trump really focusing on, um, you know, an economic plan, focusing on buying American and, and building things here. Uh, I thought his climate change plan this week uh, was really exciting and, and should help with voters of all ages. Uh, but I think particularly with younger voters uh, who mentioned that as their number one issue. So I think right now, those contours of who's doing the business they need to do to put themselves in the best chance of winning on November 3rd or whenever the election gets decided and, and called, 
you know, Biden, I think, has had a good couple of weeks here. And, you know, as we talked about John Favreau last week, the conventions really are the best opportunity to frame the argument for your candidacy, what you're going to do over the next four years, why your opponent should not be given the opportunity to be president. Um, but, you know, the work leading into that's important as well. Um, and so that's what I'm going to be spending a lot of time and attention focus on is, is Trump beginning to make some progress there. And if he's not, he's fritting away time. Uh, so our guest this week is John Holloman. I'm sure all of you uh, read John Holloman, uh, see him on MSNBC, see him on Showtime, where he's one of the, the hosts and stars of the circus. Uh, and I really want to talk to John about this race, what's different about 2020, what's the same. He's, he's covered many presidential campaigns, uh, what he thinks are, are really going to be the big moments uh, coming up, some of the questions about a message, uh, why Trump is having difficulty landing on both a positive and negative message, uh, some of the challenges that Joe Biden has coming up in terms of his VP selection announcement uh, and the debate. So I think you'll enjoy this conversation with John Hyman, who's just a really uh, excellent student um, and conveyor of all things presidential politics. John Hyman, welcome to Campaign HQ. Hey, David Pluff. I am thrilled to be here. You know, I've been waiting for this invitation for, I mean, it seems like eons, but it's probably really, <laughs> probably really only months. Well, you're here when it really matters because we're getting close to voting time. Um, so a lot I want to talk about. I want to start with this. I uh, actually had Robbie Mook on the podcast a couple weeks ago, and uh, he talked about what he thought was different 2020 to 2016. Some of that was polling, some of that was the electorate. You obviously uh, covered uh, 16 enormously closely, as you have many presidentials. You're covering this one closely. I'd like to start there. Like, what do you think are the lessons from 16 we should carry forward? And, and what's different about this? Well, I mean, I think starting with what's different. I mean, so much is different. And I, I listened to the podcast with Robbie and and I you know, I thought that a lot of the points he made were, were on. I, I, I repeat, probably end up repeating some of them. But I mean, you know, having done the 2008 race and the 2012 race, that the first thing, and it's it's so obvious that kind of shouldn't have to be said, but the difference between a race with two challengers, um, neither of whom is an incumbent, and the race where you have an incumbent president is just, I mean, they're like night and day. And, you know, the whole political dynamic is different. And and especially in this case, right, where you have a, an incumbent who is as polarizing as Trump is and, as, and has a record that is um, met with, I would say historically little approval relative to most incumbents that we've dealt with in the past. And one who is, has run his, his, his presidency in a way that is so different than any other president in our lifetime. I, I, I hesitate to say in history, but you know, you think about the two presidents I've covered who uh, got elected without winning the popular vote, Bill Clinton and George W. Bush, who both arrived in office fully cognizant of the fact that the only way they could ever get reelected, like from day one, was to expand their expand their support. It was like the first thing they thought about was, you know, I can't I, you know, Clinton with 43% of the vote, Bush with with a little under 50, you know, they got in the first the job one was I got to get some people who didn't vote for me last time to support me now. And you think about Bush in particular as the most dramatic example, because you will recall, you know, after the all the drama of the of the Supreme Court and, and the recount, you know, Bush comes into office and what's the first thing he does? He says, I'm going to go do No Child Left Behind. I'm going to do a big education bill. I'm going to team up with Ted Kennedy and I'm going to try to pass something that has that has big, bipro big bipartisan majority behind it, get 75 votes in the United States Senate so that I can start to build towards um, widening my, my base, widening my support level, get a bunch of new voters who are quicking before me. With an eye towards 2004, Trump has, you know, and, and Clinton did similar things, right? You know, think about Clinton in 90, in 93, you know, instituting an economic plan that was based on deficit reduction. That was a very conservative, you know, by the standards of a guy who had, had run in 19 on, on massive investments in public infrastructure and, and, and human capital. He comes into office and immediately starts focusing on the bond market, right? So, you know, what's Trump done? You know, Trump came in and again, for, for better or worse, and I think we both would agree for worse, but has been running has been governing from day one as if he could win again re-election without adding a single vote to his to his column right well and let, let me let me stop you there john because i think you make a great point so you obviously do a lot of reporting in trump world 
Was that based on their view? Was there a strategy meeting? We think we can just through registration and turnout win again. Did his team believe that you needed to reach out to the center and Trump didn't do it? Like, what? what why has that then been their approach? I think the other way around. I mean, I think, well, there are a couple things. First, I think everything in Trump world is driven first and foremost by Trump. So the, the team, I think, mo- more adapts to what Trump's inclinations are. And his inclination has been to be, he's a divisive figure and he... He has, you know, throughout his life before he became president, he was someone who was a divisive figure and someone who was not kind of a, you know, let's all get along and kumbaya and let's bring everyone together. His thing has always been to try to like rip, to kind of figure out who's with me, who's against me, accept that, don't try to change a lot of minds and then find the people who are loyal to him and and, and ride that horse. So that's his, been his inclination. The other thing that happened, which I think doesn't get enough attention, is that the first big policy choice they made when they came in you know, at a moment when there were still some people who thought, well, you know, Trump had run on infrastructure, right? right. He had run on healthcare. If he had come in, and people said this at the time, you thought about people like Schumer and Pelosi who said, you know, if Trump had come in and said, you know what, I want to do a trillion dollar infrastructure bill, that's the first thing I want to do. That would have been the natural starting point if what you were trying to do was build support and, and gain new voters, right? Was find something that would have gotten a lot of Democratic votes that would have been almost impossible for for liberals in the House and in the Senate to be against because every Democrat we know is for public infrastructure and public works. If Trump had done that, it would have been a wholly different, well, I, you know, I, I don't ever want to say it would have been a wholly different presidency because Trump is Trump, but just imagine if that had been the first three months of the Trump administration, Can't, a big giant push for a thing that would have, that was intended to get and would have gotten, I think, broad bipartisan support in the House and Senate. Instead of doing that, the first thing that Trump did was a very unusual thing from Trump's point of view, which was he capitulated to Republican leadership. A guy who had kind of campaigned as not being a traditional Republican looked around and and thought, okay, I, I want to score a win. What matters most? And I think he had learned the lesson that you know that you know, which is that in in two thousand in, in October of twenty sixteen, how did Trump win? He won because Republicans came home. Right. And somebody, I think his political advisor said, you know, we have to consolidate the Republican Party here. And he looked up to the House and Senate and heard from Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell, you know, that repeal and replace, even though they had nothing to replace Obamacare with, that that, that was the ultimate conservative goal, tear down the Affordable Care Act. And so he embarked on this insane strategy, which was doomed not just to fail, which it did, but also was doomed to to make it easier in some ways for Democrats to do what they wanted to do instinctively, which was be against everything Trump did going forward. So I think that's an incredibly fateful choice that got made. And I think that choice locked in a whole bunch of stuff that that in combination with Trump's instincts and, and how he is temperamentally as a politician set them on the course of, of polarization and division throughout. I mean, obviously, he could have changed course at some point along the way, but that's not Trump's way. So right. I, I do think that's a fateful choice, and I think it's one that reinforced the dynamic that pushed them down the path that they've been pushed down. And I think you know, the, the people around Trump seek Trump's favor more than anything, and he has never exhibited any interest in trying to court moderate votes. And so they have, have, have therefore kind of reverse engineered from that what an electoral strategy would look like, which has been built, as you've pointed out on this podcast now for a year, has been built on how do we use a massive financial advantage to you know, target, identify, and turn out white non-college voters in a handful of states, do the same thing we did in 2016. If it worked in 2016, you know, in Trump's view, there's no reason why it can't work in 2020. We have more money, we have the power of incumbency, and we're going to have a good economy. Let's go to Wisconsin Wisconsin, uh, Pennsylvania, and Michigan primarily, but some other states maybe, at least in their original conception, places like Minnesota, and find a bunch of white non-college voters, the millions of them that we know exist, who would be inclined to vote for Trump but didn't vote in 2016. And if we can get those guys, that's where we'll get our new votes from. Right, right. I know you make a great point. I mean, you know, obviously we still have the pandemic and Trump's Trump, but, um, you know, since he is such like an, you're either with me 100% or you're against me. Like if there had been something that was bipartisan in the beginning that was centered on what voters cared about, it might have been a different presidency. Now, I'm curious, John, so no one would accuse Trump in 16 of being, um, you know, uh, the, the idealized version of a consistent messenger. But, you know, he was more consistent both about his own message and about Hillary. Now, some of that was crooked Hillary. Some of that was she's been around forever. Why do you think Trump's having trouble right now, both being consistent about his case for re-election, and he's really struggling with nailing down his argument against Biden? Again, is that mostly Trump? Is that his team? It's a combination. What have you learned in your reporting? 
Well, I think there are two things, right? One is to just just as a prefatory comment to your first thing, you're right. He was not a consistent messenger at all in 2016. He was only consistent and a consistent messenger on the negative side. He was around Hillary Clinton, and obviously they were very uh, they were very focused and very disciplined about. They knew what the research said about Clinton, and they knew where her soft spots were. And and you can people mock the the crooked Hillary thing, but they took advantage of decades of of right wing characterizations of Hillary Clinton and the Clintons as untrustworthy. And I will say, you know, it won't be popular with some of the listeners of this podcast. Some things that you guys did in two thousand eight when you campaigned against her in the primary, though not as viciously as he did. But you guys knew what her soft spots were, and and some of those things were fair, and some of those things were unfair. But they were. A public profile that had been, you know, accreted over over many many years, and that left her vulnerable in certain ways. And they were very disciplined about driving that message. And that was not a that was not a thing that did not that 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 that, that was a thing that that arose from research. And and again, this research the Democrats had as much as Republicans had. And Trump was just obviously much more no, no holds barred about driving it. And the place where he was where he was only disciplined on the on the affirmative side was. At the key moment, right? And people again forget this, but after Access Hollywood, when we thought that was the October surprise, before we knew that Comey was going to drop the later October surprise, Comey then drops hit the last October surprise, and then you see Trump basically go dark for the last you know two weeks of the campaign, and 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 barnstorm the country, focusing almost totally on two things: one, hammering her, and two, on the economy. And he managed to be pretty disciplined at the moment when, in a very close election. His discipline those last two weeks was unusual and really worked for him. I think now, you know, there are a couple things. One of them, we'll get to Biden in a second, but one is, you know, he is, he first of all, he has slipped, I think, mentally, and his psyche is in a worse place now than it was even at the beginning of the administration. If you go back and look at interviews he gave in 2016 versus interviews he's given in 2020, you can see yep. that his ability to form coherent thoughts and speak in, in parsable sentences is, is demonstrably less than it was even four years ago. If you go back 20 years, it's, it's shocking how much he's declined. No, I saw, I saw an interview with him with like Oprah Winfrey, and he's like a completely different person. He does, says a lot of the same stuff, but he was sharp, right? right? He was humorous. Right. He connected with people. It's really fascinating. Right. And now he can't. And you know, he literally, if you... If you did a round of print interviews about a year ago, where if you went and looked, you know, like extended print interviews, look the Wall Street Journal editorial board. If you go and look at the transcripts of those interviews, it's amazing. I mean, it it is the strongest case, prima facie case, that he's suffering from some at least mild form of cognitive decline because he cannot really speak a coherent sentence. And you saw that on display yesterday uh, in the Rose Garden. You know, similar kind of thing where it's like these are not complete sentences; these are not complete thoughts. So that's one reason why it's hard for them to make him be disciplined as much as they might try. The other is that he's animated by his grievances and resentments more, and they're 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 even closer to the surface than they were back in 2016. And obviously, he's in a much worse position, and he is, I think, panicked um, over the loss of the one thing that he thought for sure he had in his back pocket, which was an economy that he could claim foolishly. I mean, ridiculously, not with any, without any merit, but he could claim it was a good economy but not the greatest economy in the history of the world. There have been many greater economies than the economy we had in 2019. But that's what he thought he had. And I think having that stripped away from him has freaked him out. And you add those two, those two qualities that have made him less able to drive a consistent message or stay disciplined in any way, the kind of fear of what's going on with the Biden factor, you know, which I have, no, I have nothing novel to say about this, except you know, there is a reason why they you know, risked impeachment and why they tried to get a foreign right. government to take Joe Biden out. Because although many of us, you know, in the, in the, in the press and many Democrats I know looked at Biden and said, he's not, you know, he's, he's not the candidate he once was. Uh, he might not be the best standard bearer. People had lots of criticisms of Joe Biden as a performer. You know, the Trump people early on looked at that electoral strategy they had, which involved the upper Midwest uh, battleground states and said, you know, Joe Biden as a as a as a as a biography, as a person of cultural relatability, he is someone who is going to resonate in states that we need to win with a lot of voters we need to win over. And on top of that, putting a negative frame around this guy is going to be hard. Donald Trump did not want another septuagenarian white guy to run against. He wanted a, <laughs> you know, he wants right. to run against the other, someone he can credibly characterize as the other. And Joe Biden is anything but the other to Donald Trump. He's another, you know. 
70-something white guy who's basically culturally pretty conservative and who even Donald Trump, with all of his disregard for the truth, even Donald Trump can't bring himself to say that Joe Biden is is a member of the radical left. He can't, he pops out of his mouth all the time. He says, well, he's not really a member of the radical left, but he's a tool of the radical left. And you're like, okay, buddy, you're obviously stymied by this guy. And again, all the tells were there. They knew they were going to have a problem with Biden, which is why they tried to take him out early. And now they're stuck with the candidate who they least wanted to face for these reasons. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because, you know, listen, Trump will clearly say anything about anyone. He'll lie. It does seem like he doesn't believe the stuff he's saying about Biden. Uh, you know, whether maybe the Sleepy Joe stuff a little bit, but, you know, his kind of heart's not in it. And one of Trump's strengths as a political performer is, I mean, it's he's not really a happy warrior, but he enjoys the theater. And you get a sense right now he's not really enjoying this moment. Totally. And, and I, you know, when I, you know, we, the, the Tulsa rally has been parsed to death, of course, but, you know, the main thing that I saw when I watched him up there was, you know, and I made the kind of fat Elvis kind of comment about it on, in social media and on television, but it was not that the, I mean, the crowd was obviously the fling was a, was a clusterfuck on, on a bunch of levels and, and the campaign messed up and made all of the mechanical mistakes of building, of building up expectations and then not being able to build a crowd and all of that misreading what the public sentiment would be about going into a closed room with no masks. But the main thing that was striking was just how bad the performance was and how sort of lazy and and half-hearted and dissolute and sort of sloppy the whole thing was. And, you know, Trump is, again, not a master of discipline or, or of a tight scripted performance, but his heart didn't seem in it to me then. In the Rose Garden yesterday, his heart doesn't seem in it. And I think there are a lot of people, and you've seen reporting of this, things that I hear all the time is that people on his staff, they know that what motivates Trump is he doesn't want to, he's not going to quit because he doesn't want to be a quitter forever. And he's not going to drop out and seed the stage. But there is a definite sense that that people question how much does he really want this? And is he really, you know, balls to the wall for for being able to do what what is required to be able to win any presidential campaign? As you know, it requires your all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your energy, all of your mind, all of your focus, everything, right? And a lot of people around him on a regular basis say, I don't know. He doesn't seem like the same guy. He doesn't seem to have the fire in the belly to use the cliche that he had the last time around. Yeah, no, it's so interesting. Really. So I'm curious, John, you mentioned the Rose Garden uh, abomination uh, yesterday. We're, we're talking on Wednesday. This was Tuesday. Uh, so Trump's performance. I'm curious, you know, you've been in the Rose Garden uh, many times. So if you're talking about the Rose Garden, the Brady briefing room, the East Room. So Trump just basically giving a campaign screed. We've never seen that before uh, in American history. So I'm curious, like when you think about if Joe Biden wins, if a Democrat replaces him or a Republican, like, are these norms now shattered forever, or is this really going to be unique to Trump? I think that I mean I, I think I wouldn't want to paint with too broad a brush, and and I and I don't feel comfortable predicting a lot of things. I do think that some of these norms will will come will snap back, and and this is one of them, right? Especially if the if if you know I mean it's it, you know Joe Biden gets is the is the is the winner of this election because Biden is you know, reveres these traditions and reveres these yeah. norms. And some part of what's going to animate his victory if he wins is going to be, and is going to be read by the people around him to be a desire for kind of a restoration. A des- and, and by restoration, I mean, not of, you know, democratic rule, but a restoration of old values, old norms, traditions, customs, and, and part of what, you know, and, and, and some of the dignity of the office. And, and I think that what, you know, Biden will take that as a mandate to to kind of say, hey, this was abnormal. We don't want this to now become the new normal. So I'm going to crusade for the old normal. And, you know, you're right about the, you know, there. I don't mean to sound too sappy or sentimental, but those places are, you know, you worked in the White House, you know, those are, those places are, are sacrosanct. You would never think. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, the reality is, again, as you know, it's naive to say that a that an incumbent president doesn't use the powers of the office and the powers of incumbency to advance their political interests, especially in an election year. Um, I would say David Pluff, of all people who ever worked in the White House, you understood the nexus of those things as well as anybody. I have no idea what but, you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, normally it's how do I advance a policy agenda because I have this power that will benefit the American people or targeted parts of the American electorate that will be in con- that will be synchronous will be consonant with my political interests. And so that's a you know that you know you, and you like having that big plane to fly around on and you like you know a lot of things about how easy it is to get around the country 
um, for instance, the logistics of being a sitting president and having to do the campaign while governing. You luckily have the most awesome transportation infrastructure in the world at your disposal. So there's a lot of advantages. But the thing that you never would have seen from anybody, Republican, Democrat ever, was someone launching partisan, pure campaign, partisan, negative, personal broadsides from any of those rooms that you just mentioned. And so it's sort of horrifying to, to see it when it happens. And I think most of the press corps is horrified by it. And I think a lot of Republicans, frankly, are horrified by it. And I do think that, frankly, if that one of the things that will benefit Biden enormously in the first, you know, the honeymoon Joe Biden's going to have, um, I don't mean to suggest that I think party polarization is going away because I think that's very deeply baked into the cake. And we can talk for a long time about that as we have in the past. But I do think in those first few months of a Biden administration, there will be a giant sigh of relief and uh, obviously joy on the Democratic side, but some amount of, of, a, of a big exhale from Republicans who will quietly, privately, under their breaths. And again, I'm not saying they'll, they'll accede to all of Joe Biden's policy priorities, but I think you know they will be sitting there in their offices going, thank fucking God that we're like out of this maelstrom and out of this chaos because you know we have our own political interests to take care of and it will be easier for them to tend their political interests without having to worry about Trump. Um, I think there will be a, a, you know, a moment where Biden can really get some work done uh, in the early part of that administration because of that, because the fact that the, 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 the atmosphere will be, uh, there'll be a lot of cloudless days politically in the early part of the Biden administration because of the fact that people will be looking at him doing things and going, you know what, we actually liked it the way it was before. <laughs> it's good to be back there. So I want to talk about the next, um, you know, three and a half months uh, from uh, a reporter's perspective. But, you know, we were just talking about the White House. What's interesting to me uh, is, you know, you look at Clinton's, you know, reelection, George W. Bush's, ours in 12, even Ronald Reagan's. Uh, we made a lot of mistakes. But, you know, I think there was a pretty good operating uh, model between the White House and the campaign. Um, and, and, you know, maybe the reporting is overblown, but it seems like right now it's kind of a cluster, uh, you know, between the White House and the campaign and outside voices. What are you hearing in your reporting about what's really going on? And again, this is far less important than the economy, the pandemic, Trump's performance, Biden's performance. But in a close race, the efficiency of your campaign can make a difference. Right. Chaos, you know, is what I'm hearing and, and cluster times five. Right. Um, you know, and, and all of it's exacerbated by the pandemic because, you know, it's, it, it is a reality that it's hard to, you know, when you can't get everybody in a room, you think about the Biden campaign is going through this too, right? Where everything's done remotely and, and you can't pull the the senior team together. It's easier to do it in the White House than it is to do it, than it is for the Biden campaign to do it. But there's still the challenges of trying to operate in this environment where you're trying to be safe and you're trying to be distanced. And, and even though Trump doesn't publicly abide by that stuff, um, doesn't wear a mask, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's still the case that he's very, very afraid of getting sick. And so he's keeping his distance from people internally. And, you know, there's a lot of things about, especially for a guy who ran in 2016 for most of the campaign with as kind of a pirate ship, right? Never really had anything like the Obama organization of 2008 or the Obama uh, as, as a challenger. You know, he didn't have like this giant campaign team and never really, and, he, and in his business life, never really operated that way either. So there's a lot of, of, of friction. Obviously, we read all the stories. You know, we know that Trump hates uh, advisors who get too much attention. We know advisor that Trump hates anybody who is seen is is or is seen to be profiting financially from him. So, you know, that puts a big red X on the back of, of Brad Parscale, and I hear stories about that all the time. You know, Trump does not, I think, fully believe in Jared's political instincts, and so there's really no one, you know, in the way that that a successful reelection effort relies to some extent, you know, and your boss and you guys modeled this as well as anybody, which was a candidate slash president who has a very tight circle, who doesn't have, you know, a lot of consultants in their ear, doesn't have, you know, doesn't even want to really meet all of his pollsters. <laughs> all he really wants is a handful of people he really trusts and confides in and takes the advice of, right? That's the model that has worked. That's the model that worked for Bush. It's the model. Clinton's a little bit sloppier. doesn't really play by that rule, but um, but that's the model that has generally worked. And Trump doesn't really have that. He doesn't have a small, tight coterie of political advisors who he, who he really trusts and really believes in. And that was always a problem. It was a problem in 2016. 
Um, and it's in, and he overcame it. And it's a problem now, especially given some of the dynamics I just talked about. So I think it is, uh, it is a, uh, it is a cluster over there. And, and I think, you know, obviously there, those are secondary, secondary problems, but they are considerable problems because you now have a giant campaign operation. And I think even, and you, you should actually opine on this. I think it met the, the notion of, of, of a tight inner circle at the very top of the pyramid is all the more important the bigger and more fearsome and awesome your campaign machine is. Because without a really strong command and control operation at the top that has the ear of the candidate and has the trust of the candidate, that campaign can easily spin wildly out of control and can also really easily operate without much coordination and without the kind of focus that it needs to. And the bigger and more well-financed it is, the bigger a problem it is if the leadership isn't strong coming from the top. Yeah, no, it's what's what's so puzzling about this is that, you know, Trump, you know, if I recall, he announced his reelection the days of inauguration. Like, no, no one's ever done that. It's been the entire animating principle of his first term. Uh, They've put together unprecedented money, you know, organization. Yet at this point, you know, this close to the election, it seems like Biden. Now, Biden obviously is a veteran on the scene, but they came out of a primary underfunded, broke, understaffed. And it seems like they just have a better sense right now strategically of what they're doing day to day. Uh, And that, you know, that is a puzzle to me, because no matter what's happening in terms of the economy or pandemic, you know, all you can do in politics is control the things you can control. And it doesn't seem like Trump world's doing that very well right now. Right, totally, and I'd say you know I, when when the, when all this is over, just to shift the, the focus on to Biden a little bit, and again, I'm interested to hear what you have to say about this. But I think it's un it, it's definitely not been covered or noted to the degree that I find it's, it's kind of astonishing. You know, you think about what happened with those guys, right? He didn't run a traditional front runner campaign. You know, he was you know in the sense that he was underfunded, didn't have a big staff, et cetera. Like you know, in 2008, by the time you guys finished the can the primary. Right, you probably had six, seven hundred people working for you by May of two thousand eight. Yeah, more. Yeah, more. Yeah, probably more by that point. Yeah, because we were starting to hire up. Yeah, and you probably raised, you know, what by that time by May you'd raised two hundred fifty, three hundred million dollars, two fifty, three hundred something like that. Right. Yeah. So yeah. the Biden campaign has, you know, by the time you got to to March when they had that astonishing week that turned everything around for them, or ten days, and basically won the primary. They had maybe a couple hundred people on staff and had raised almost no money in the course of a year, right? So all of that happens. They then have the most astonishing seven to 10 day run, maybe in the history of democratic politics, uh, where he goes from dead to the, the de facto nominee. And the pandemic then hits, they close down the headquarters and none of them expect to ever go back there again. So they've run from the moment that they had any good fortune, they've had to build a general election campaign on the basis of the skeleton campaign they previously had, it's always hard to transition from a primary campaign to a general election campaign. You guys go from 600 employees to 2000 or whatever, but they've gone from like nothing to trying to build up a general election campaign. And they've had to do the entire thing over zoom. And I look at Jen O'Malley Dillon and I say, you know, however this turns out, that is like one of the most kind of has to be one of the most mind fucking uh, challenges that any presidential campaign manager has ever faced. And so far she seems to be doing a pretty great job. Yeah, no, she's showing great entrepreneurial skill in addition to, you know, political chops. No, I agree with that. It's no matter what happens. And listen, it could be that the campaign didn't need to do anything well and Biden would win, but it seems like they're maximizing this advantage really, really well. So I'm curious, John, you, um, you've not just covered a lot of presidential campaigns, you've written books about them. So as you think about, okay, we're now, uh, you know, mid-July, people are going to start voting in, in like two, two and a half months. We have election day within four months. Um, you know, we have debates and we've got conventions very different in a pandemic. I'm just curious as you think about what's really going to matter uh, in this campaign, particularly with Trump, it's hard to sort out the signal through the noise. So like as you're pr- budgeting your time and really thinking through what do you think are still going to be potentially the decisive moments in this campaign? Maybe they're the same as they were in 16 and 12 and 8. And if so, that's OK. But I'm just curious how you're thinking about that. Well, the first thing is just to say a thing that I th- a minute ago when you were talking about uh, about your about your reelect, the Bush reelect and the Clinton reelect, the, just just to, to just to note it because I think it's worth noting. All three of those reelects, which I covered, you know, the 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 race was basically decided in the spring of 
of, we didn't know it at the time, but the race was really the di- the fundamental dynamics of the race were established. And I would say more or less decided you guys still had to execute. There were still big moments, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is that Bill Clinton won in 1996 by framing Bob Dole as a puppet of Newt Gingrich's basically. Um, and, and by the time you got, obviously that was a runaway race, but, but the, the, the damage was done to Dole in the spring of 1996, the damage was done to Kerry, uh, by Bush, by, you know, voted for it before he voted against it. Swift boat, all that stuff happened in the spring of 20 of 2004. And obviously you guys decimated Mitt Romney in the spring of 2000 and uh, through 2012 by running, you know, those uh, an incredibly effective set of, of negative ads and, and other digital work in the battleground states that, that ultimately painted Romney as, you know, some combination of, you know, Thurston Howell the third and Scrooge McDuck, whatever you guys want to call it, but you guys sort of did your work on him. And then it was just kind of executing. And there were, obviously there were big moments. Conventions are always big moments. Debates are big moments. You guys had your scare in Denver. Um, you know, these are moments, right? But, but but in an incumbent race, so much of the work gets done in the spring. And and obviously we've already talked about how Trump has not has not made the race about Biden to this point. Um, the race is all about Trump. You know, the fundamental thing of turning this race into a choice election and disqualifying Joe Biden, none of that has been done and it's now July. And in fact, by you know, Trump is in is in this terrible position. We you know, we didn't really on that first question about your thing about Robbie and what's different. You know, we didn't run through the numbers. You guys did that the other day, but my God, just look at at where things are. This is not 2016. There was never a time in 2016 where Hillary Clinton had the kind of uh, broad support uh, that Biden has right now. She was never at 50. She, you know, never was having outside the margin of error leads in every battleground state. I you know, never saw that in 2016. So it's different, right? And so, you know, that has not happened. And to the, to a large extent. The work, the kind of definition of Trump has been has been building up for three and a half years. But in this moment of multiple uh, crises of, of an economic crisis, a health crisis, a race crisis, all of those things, it's just hard to see. So much of this now feels to me really locked in. And, and it may very well be if, if Joe Biden wins this election and wins it pretty easily, we will look back on the spring of 2020 and say, that's really when the race got decided. Having said that, I think they, you know, the big moments that are still ahead or, you know, the conventions, especially with Jacksonville seeming to unravel right now, the conventions, I just don't know how to predict what's going to happen there. It's obviously one of the big moments in every, it's one of the big moments that, that campaigns can control. One of the few, the last really big moment that a campaign can fully control. Yeah. It's like shooting free throws. It's hard to, you know, I mean, the, you know, like Romney's team messed it up with Clint Eastwood or maybe Clint Eastwood were up, but it's generally Pat Buchanan in 92. There's, there's incidents where people didn't leverage it fully, but it is a great opportunity where, you know, you're not facing a lot of incoming. Right. And, and so, you know, the, the, the problem, you know, so, but you know, that's true. And so usually these campaigns, you know, usually the campaigns get it right. I, I don't know what's going to happen in either campaign, in either convention, really. I mean, I have some sense of what the Democrats are trying to do. I think the Trump situation is as out of control as the whole campaign is right now, because no one knows really what the scenario is going to be for Jacksonville. And I still think there's a 30% chance that it doesn't happen at all in Jacksonville. And we end up with like Trump giving a speech in a, in a big ballroom at Mar-a-Lago. But, um, you know, I think to a greater degree, then maybe any, you know, the uh, the vice presidential selection is obviously going to matter for Biden, I think, in a way that vice presidential selections normally don't. We can talk about more about that if you want. But I think the debates really are going to be super crucial in this campaign, because if you think that the fundamental strategic imperative of the Biden campaign is to make keep making the race about Trump, you think about what are the moments that could change that. They're the, 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 the ones that are unpredictable where Biden makes a mistake of some kind that allows the Trump campaign to make it about Biden. And the, the, the biggest stage for that is going to be the debate stage. And so I think especially that first debate, um, which normally favors the challenger, you know, because as you know, you know, you're elevated for the first time. People look at you like you're oh, standing up there with Donald Trump. He's standing there next to the president. That should favor Biden, that dynamic. And they have obviously lowered expectations, meaning they, meaning the Trump campaign by trying to portray Biden as senile. They've, they've foolishly lowered expectations to the point where you think that as long as Joe Biden doesn't like get up on stage and piss on himself, he's going to be fine. Right. So no one would ever accuse Donald Trump of, of playing political chess. But uh, 
But but this is to me the fundamental problem, which is you know he's weak. The radical left will control him. He's senile. He's not up to this. To your point, I mean, if Biden basically doesn't you know have a bathroom accident on the stage, <laughs> but if he does better than that, I don't want to right. say this would be like Reagan and eighty, but you know things could really get locked in. So what is the strategy there? Help me understand that. Uh, dude, I, you know, I think they've been so they've been so befuddled by the thing we were discussing earlier, which is how do you put, find a frame around Biden that will make him unacceptable when you can't paint him as the other. You know, they have seized on this this he's senile, he's incompetent, he can't, you know, he can't think straight, he doesn't control his own campaign. That obviously opens the door to the radical left. Is really he's going to be a puppet for for AOC and Elizabeth Warren? They've seized on that without really fully playing out. The, the implications of it because you know there are, you know there are a variety of implications to it one of them is this debate thing where I mean I know from from inside the Biden team that they they are not I I don't think that they're overconfident you know there's always a risk of overconfidence in these situations but they look at what happened with Sanders as being a really good template for what they're going to try to accomplish with Trump which was that was kind of the question about and when you went into the the one-on-one debate the single one-on-one debate at the end of the campaign between Biden and Sanders, there was some of this dynamic, which was, you know, has Biden passed it? Has he lost his fastball? Bernie is a very consistent debater. He's, he, you know, whatever you think of Bernie, he, he, he performs in a very consistent manner on the debate stage. Biden could be in trouble in this debate. And it's why Sanders kind of insisted on still having it when the race was kind of out of reach for him. So they had that debate and Biden was good for the first half an hour. He wasn't great, but he was good. And the first, and 30 minutes into the debate, you said, well, this debate's over. You know, Biden is not an old doddering, you know, senile old man. He's fine. And they were seen as having won that debate and basically putting the nomination away. That's sort of what they're counting on on the Biden side now is that Trump continues to lower expectations and the Biden gets out there and he has a totally solid first 30 minutes. And to your point, again, maybe not Reagan, but you know, because you people forget there was only one debate in that Reagan Carter Carter year, so that single debate mattered more than more than anything has ever mattered in a single moment in a presidential campaign. But that they can really get a lot locked in if if Biden can just come in there and be solid for thirty minutes against Trump. Now the other side of that, you know, is that Joe Biden has never seen anything on a debate stage like Donald Trump, and so you know you got to be still be vigilant and nervous about that because you know Biden was not comfortable in the multi candidate debates. He was not not particularly comfortable being up there with a bunch of women on stage, not particularly comfortable being up there with a bunch of candidates of color on stage. And, but you know, none of that is the discomfort that you'll have with Donald Trump, you know, you know, stalking around the stage, hovering over Biden, you know, who knows what'll happen uh, in the town hall style debate. I mean, so I think they have to stay, they, they know that they have to continue to be, to, to really prepare and spend a lot of time. You know, you know, they have Ron Klain, of course, who's done more debate prep than anybody in the history of democratic politics. So, but but I do think that dynamic could could favor them uh, in a pretty dramatic way if if it plays out that way. And I and I don't think, you know, the Trump campaign has any again they really have struggled to find a way to go after Biden. So they've gone after him on this front. I'll say another problem with what they've done is you know in a race where a big part of what is 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 hampering Trump's ability to even be competitive in a lot of these battleground states is the fact that he's bleeding support with seniors, right? Right campaigning on the basis that Joe Biden is an old senile man is a double-edged sword. If you're going to do that, you have to do it pretty surgically, right? Because as soon as you start looking at, at a septuagenarian man and saying, well, he's out of it, he's passed it, he can't do the job, you run the risk of having a lot of senior voters, many of whom are already turning against Trump because of the COVID management problem. You have a bunch of senior voters who go, wait a minute, like, you know, like the senile argument doesn't necessarily, doesn't automatically and obviously play to your advantage there. And I don't think they thought that through either. Yeah. It does seem like they don't really focus on any off ramps, you know, (laughs) they just kind of launch. So uh, uh, you mentioned uh, the VP selection. Um, And, you know, I think, uh, I think this will be 90% a government, a governance choice for Biden, uh, as Obama's selection of him was, as I think most presidents have focused less on the campaign, more on the partner in the White House. But where could this go wrong for Biden? Well, you know, the, the main place it could go wrong, I think, the old, one of the few real lessons that I've learned in covering eight of these or whatever, is that, you know, there's really one fundamental bar you need to clear. And it, it sounds, it's so simple that it sounds stupid to even say it, but you know, ready to be president from day one is the only thing that matters. It's really the only thing that matters because the reality is, as you know, you know, 
running mates don't get you that much. You know, that we've learned from a lot of political science that it's not like they're going to win you a constituency and it's not like they're going to win you a state because as Joe Biden said in 2008, memorably, you know, nobody votes for the bottom of the ticket. People vote for the top of the ticket. So, so why does it matter? It matters because it's the first executive presidential decision that a nominee makes is making a decision that's going to have implications over the course of the four year term that he's going to be, uh, when he, that he's going to have when he gets, if he gets elected and he's in office. And in Joe Biden's case, being 77 years old, you know, it's the actuarial tables mean that it matters more. You know, you got to be very careful to make sure that everyone is reassured that you're picking someone on the basis of governing. And it's a it's a window into the candidate's values and their judgment, right? That's how voters look at the at the nom- at the selection of a of a running mate. So if you clear the bar, you know, if you clear that bar, ready to be president from day one, you pick Joe Biden, all good. You're off to the races. You pick Dick Cheney, all good, off to the races. You pick Al Gore, all good, off to the races. Even Mike Pence was, you, you know, pick well, Mike Pence, right? All good, not a problem. No neg, you know, they can do a lot. You know, the, the, the press, the filter. You know, it matters that the candidate think that this person's ready to be president. It matters that the public thinks this person's ready to be president. But it really matters that the national press corps looks at that person and says, "Okay, you know, that person's ready to be president." If you if you get this wrong, you got Dan Quayle. And you have months of stories about, was this a political pick? Is he really up to the job? Um, why did you pick this guy? Let's look at this person more carefully. How does this person disagree with the president? What does this person not know? What's in his past? And of course, Palin, right, is the even more dramatic right. example of that, which is you just have a fucking headache for weeks, if not longer, as the press corps feasts on all of the things that you can feast on if you decide to really go go in and go hard against a nominee. So if you pass that, and I think, you know, I think Joe Biden, having been through this process before, you know, having been through the beep stakes, having been selected, having been vice president, I think Joe Biden and the very close circle of people around him, he's actually confiding in, which I would say is like about four people and two of them are family, his sister and his wife. I think they understand this as well as anybody I've ever covered, that that's the thing that they really have to get done. And so where could it go wrong? I think it could go wrong if you pick someone that people don't have immediate confidence they're ready to be president and a pick that looks political. Right. Um, any other pick, you're going to be fine. Yeah. No, I agree with that very much. That That's the bar. Um, and, you know, I, I think that kind of like the convention, obviously, that it is a choice completely in your control. <laughs> but uh, yes. so you should get it right. So, John, um, you are one of the stars of this show, uh, The Circus on Showtime, a, a great show that takes us uh, deep inside uh, campaigns, and uh, you, you film every week. I think you guys are starting your schedule again relatively soon. Talk to me about that. I mean, you know, traditionally you guys are backstage at events. You're on uh, campaign buses with candidates. Uh, you're in close proximity, you know, to the people you're interviewing. How does the circus look uh, in this pandemic era? It's a really good question, and that one that I don't fully have the answer to. I think it looks different. Um, I think we all assume that. Just a really, I mean, part of the way we make that show, in addition to all the things you just said, is you know we we shoot a ton of stuff, and occasionally we'll shoot an interview with someone that doesn't even make the show. <clears throat> David Pluff, <laughs> you know, uh, because we're constantly trying to do a show that's both a narrative and and a and a news summary kind of of the week. So we shoot way more stuff than we use. When you know it's a thirty minute show, we shoot you know we'll shoot fifteen interviews in a given week, and. And that means that there's four camera crews who are on planes almost every day, and we're deciding on a daily basis where someone go, where the three hosts are going, where the or, and where the where the crews are going, and we're just rolling constantly, right? We're on the move constantly. It's the ultimate field show. And then there's all that intimacy you talked about, right? So the first thing is, I think you know, we we all assume that we're not going to be overshooting like that because travel is going to be challenging, and so. We're going to have to make decisions, I think, ahead of on a given week. You know, here's the show we're making. Here are the scenes we're going to need. And we're going to shoot what we need to shoot and then put the show together and not kind of do the smorgasbord kind of that we normally do. Um, And I think the other, so that's going to be different. The question is how different? I mean, in a fully locked down world, we could make a show that was like an interview show that looked like an Errol Morris documentary where we had a studio, it was clean. We controlled for COVID and we brought people in. We sat, you know, had temperature checks and COVID testing and brought people in, sat down and do, did interviews with relevant people and just did a string of interviews. That would not look much like the show as it's currently, as it's been for the last four and a half years, but it's a show we could make. So I think 
what we've done in the course of the last three months and our partners at Left Right, the production company we work with to make it, is to sit down and try to do a wide spectrum of scenarios of what the country would look like, you know, how, how much, how, how, what's the state of testing? How much travel can we do? Uh, what, what are the campaigns actually doing? How much are they out in the world and how much are they not, are they virtual? You know, what, what is the state of play and, and, and design a bunch of different scenarios from, from something kind of close to what we normally do to something radically different from than what we've ever done and everything in between, and then try to figure out all the health protocols that would attend to any of those given scenarios. And then, you know, there are, you can imagine what's going on in the, in the planning process for this, for this run, we're going to be on the air for 13 weeks at a minimum. And if Trump, you know, decides to, to not accept the election results on election night, which I think is a high probability if he's lost, we may keep making episodes into November. If there's a overtime here, um, you know, we're making we're hundreds of pages under different scenarios of what the protocols will be and how we'll, what the different shows could look like and how we'll have to operate and how we'll have to behave. And my attitude towards it has been, I'm really glad you guys are doing all this preparatory work. And I really want to look at it like the first week of August before we go back into production, because not knowing what the world's going to be like, I don't really feel like reading it 2000 pages of stuff. You know, like <laughs> I want to know, I want to like have a better sense of like which world we're operating in before I start to really focus on what it's going to mean. But I do think, you know, it's a, it's a huge challenge and it's a huge challenge across the news business. It's a huge challenge, obviously in scripted television, everyone's dealing with this, this issue of like, how do we get, you know, on the air? The one thing I know is that, you know, this is the most consequential election of our lifetimes. Everybody says that every four years, and it's never true. This time, it probably is true, and so we're we're going to cover it. The but the questions of exactly how, you know, talk to me in a month. Wow, that is wild. I mean, it's yeah. kind of it's kind of headache inducing to think through all the variables there. Fun in a way, I guess. But uh, you know, he, but as you say, you just kind of roll with the punches. So, John, uh, you've been very generous. Time. Last question. You know, you've obviously been a, a journalist for a long time, maybe longer than you'd like to admit. Um, uh, television, obviously, you know, cable television, yeah. uh, Showtime, uh, you've written for, for many different publications. I think that, you know, one of the stories of this Trump era is just the heroism of media, whether that local media, national media, under kind of withering assault. Where, how do you think that unfolds? Let's say Biden does win. Um, I mean, are we still going to be in a place where 40% of the country just doesn't trust the media? How does the media, re, you know, and I don't, I really think the media, this isn't their job, really. You know, they're just doing their job. But how do you think about that going forward? I think, A, that you're a thousand percent right that, you know, under an unprecedented, at least in our lifetimes, an unprecedented withering assault on not just the media business, but on the fundamental things that that are underpin the the information component of our free society, you know, it's been a fl- an assault not just on the press and the institutional press corps, but on the truth, right? Um, and the notion of you know the basic thing that we all believed, you know, previously, which was you know you're entitled to your own opinions, but not to your own facts. The famous Pat Moynihan line, you know, that's been under assault, right? This by the not just under assault, but under assault, and not just under assault by Fox News or Breitbart or or Sinclair, but but under assault by the president of the United States, who has the biggest podium and the biggest <laughs> uh, bullhorn in the country. And I think that your point, which is that the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, you know, the, the television networks, the cable networks, you know, have many people have done heroic, valiant work. And I, 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 you know, I think that places like the Post and the Times for all their flaws have risen to the occasion and done some of the best reporting and done the best job I've seen in my lifetime of holding uh, a president. I mean, I was six when Watergate happened, so I can't really speak to that as much, but it's a you know, in my adult lifetime, holding this president to account right. has been an incredible thing to witness. I unfortunately think, and this, you know, I, I said at one point that I thought that, you know, Biden would have a great honeymoon if he won, but that it wouldn't be the end of political polarization because that's too deeply baked into the cake. And I apply that also to your question about media, which is to say, I think, you know, Trump, in my view, continues to be more a, more a symptom than a cause. There was a, a sickness in the Republican Party that allowed him to take it over. There's a, a, a sickness in the country where we have these hermetically sealed bubbles where there's no agreement about the fundamental things about like what's up and what's down, what's left and what's right. And I don't think that Trump being gone 
from the White House is going to change this very poisonous atmosphere where we can't have uh, basic respect for facts, basic respect for the people who try to get at the facts. And I think you're going to still have this very oppositional, partisan, uh, ideological cast to a lot of not just media itself, but in ter- but but how media is viewed in the country. I don't think that those people who think that that the New York Times and MSNBC and 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 basically all establishment media are quote fake news. Donald Trump being gone and not having to listen to him say fake news all the time is not going to change the fact that a lot of people think the establishment press is fake news. And that's something that in 30 years of doing this, I've run across, you know, all over the country long before Trump. And I expect that I'm going to, it's going to continue to be a problem going forward. And I don't have a solution to it, but I think it's, it's a, it's a huge problem for the, the basic business of the country. We have big problems in the country, but you know, the country faces big challenges and the, the inability of, of national leaders to be able to summon big, broad consensus in the country to tackle the kind of consensus that you need to tackle big structural problems, whether those problems are social problems like race or their economic problems like uh, globalization and and automation and, you know, and and the skills gap and the education problems that we have, you need, you don't need, you can't, you don't do that with a, with, with 51% of the country. You do that with, with, 70% 70% of the country, 80% of the country. And it's really, really hard, as you know, from your time in the White House and others who have been in this game know, it is now really hard, almost impossible to get uh, to, to get to that kind of consensus about the nature of a problem and the potential solutions when a, a big chunk of the country just does not believe anything they read, see, or hear uh, from the establishment media, from the mainstream media. And I sadly think that that is not, a, like I said, that's not a problem that's going away. Uh, and I think it's a terrible problem. I mean, it's a terrible problem that makes confronting these big these big issues that the country faces n- not impossible, but way closer to impossible than it should be or than is good for us. Right. No, it's very sobering, but it's important to stare reality in the face, and that's what we're facing. But it, it is interesting. There are some issues, some gun safety issues, some immigration issues, uh, even some tax issues where you do get north of 70, even 80 percent. But the problem is the 20 or 25 percent in opposition is universally in opposition, right? Uh, and they tend to vote in primaries. No, it, it really is a lock. we got to figure out how to pick. Well, John, thank you for your time. Good luck uh, thinking through how you're going to cover uh, the closing weeks of this <laughs> campaign. And uh, we'd love to talk to you again down the road. We may just fly you out from California, Pluff, and lock you in a room and make you talk to the camera for 13 straight weeks. In that hermetically sealed uh, studio? Sounds good to me, man. Correct. We'll, we'll feed you well. What's crazy is, as much as I uh, have really loved not traveling, I'm kind of dying to get on a plane at some point. Uh, maybe, not with, maybe, maybe not with Ted Cruz, uh, but yeah. with people who wear masks. You know. Yeah, me too. I got to say, I've, I've been okay through this pandemic, but in the last just couple weeks, I'm starting to get a little, I mean, I'm, you know, you, we're both, you know, peripatetic. I probably travel more than you do, but we, we both travel a lot and I like being on the road. Like I like going out into the country and hearing what people think. I like going to the battleground States. You know, I've done every election I've covered. I pride myself. I don't sit in a, in a, I mean, I do sit in cable news studios, but I also, you know, the circus means when I'm out on the road, man, I'm, I'm, I'm in those battleground right. States. Right. I love getting out there and seeing what's actually going on in those States. I love in the, in the, in the nomination fight. I love, love being in Iowa, love being in New Hampshire, love being in South Carolina. And I haven't missed it. I haven't missed the travel that much, but in the last couple of weeks, I'm getting a little, I'm getting a little footloose here. I'm getting a little itchy to get back out there because it's weird to see this campaign unfolding only on screens in front of me. I, I want to get out and 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 be part of it again. And, and I'm going to figure out a way to do it. That's awesome. No, I think that, uh, you know, you're exactly right. I mean, as proficient as we've all gotten, uh, uh, you know, at the video and, and phone calls, you know, there is no substitute for the kind of work you've done. So and I'm, you'll learn things, I'm sure, that surprise you uh, getting out there. So look forward to your dispatches from the field. All right, brother. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. A great conversation with John Hyman, as I expected it to be. You know, a, few, a couple things jumped out to me. One, on the VP selection, just really narrowing in on, um, you know, it's a pretty clear and, and low bar for Joe Biden to pass. But if he doesn't pass that, if he does something that people view as either risky or maybe that person's not ready to be president on day one, um, he could do some damage. And then fascinating to talk about some of the struggles that Trump's having, really landing on articulate um, and effective case against Biden and on his behalf. 
Um, I think John makes a great point that the people around Trump are there to serve him. They don't really challenge him. So, you know, if he comes up with some cockamamie uh, idea, their job is to go figure out how to make that work as opposed to fight back. And, you know, John also made the point that, you know, he thinks Trump slipped a little bit. If you look at interviews he mentioned from 16, much less earlier in his life, you know, the same Christmas is not there. And I think that was very evident again uh, in the Rose Garden debacle uh, of this week. Really interesting to hear John also just talk about, you know, from their narrow interest of putting uh, the circus back on the air, all the challenges that that's going to pose. And, and, you know, John mentioned how difficult it's been for the presidential campaigns, but it, it just really brings in stark relief how, you know, different things are and the complications of, you know, I'm sure we're all eager for the circus to come back on the air and uh, and be brought behind the scenes. But uh, just what that show looks like is just another example of, of all the adjustments um, that are needed to be made out there. And, you know, John made the point the Biden campaign isn't assuming they'll ever be back under one roof in Philadelphia, which is amazing that we may. Uh, Trump's campaign is obviously together, at least some of them. There was that you know picture with Pence with none of them had masks on. Uh, but a lot of things remarkable about this election. But if Joe Biden is able to win the presidency and have done it really over the last eight months of the campaign uh, with his entire team virtually, that's going to be one for the history books. Um, so thanks for tuning in and look forward to be being back with you next week. <laughs>